We then saw in the distance the British Army tanks and here we were between this crowd and the soldiers coming to dismantle the barricade and all I could hear from behind us were shouts of traitors and I honestly didn't know whether a rock would hit the back of our heads or a bullet would go through our backs. Welcome everybody, this is Simon Gilbo with Inspired and this week we've got another fantastic guest. His name is Ken Fanta Clark, it's Bishop Ken Clark and welcome Ken. Thank you so much Simon, great to be with you. It is great to have you indeed. Now listen, uh, in terms of our connection, I first heard you speak, I think at a conference, international conference in 2001, 2002-ish. I studied uh, All Nations with your daughter Tanya. And so you're old enough to be my dad. How old are you? Early 70s? <laughs> I am 71 and I will be 72 next month. And I'm not one of these people who is so sensitive about their age that if they're ever asked what age they are, they will reply something like, I was born in the year 19, mind your own business. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, listen, um, I'm trusting that you've got... Uh, several decades more wisdom to show for it in this interview. And uh, we're excited to hear you talk about your life and where the law's taken you. So listen, why don't you just give us a potted history of, of your upbringing and childhood? Okay, happily do that. Well, one of my claims to fame, Simon, is that I was born in the same time as the famous golfer Rory McIlroy. Mm -hmm. And I would love to tell you that I taught him all he knows about golf, but I would have to ask the Lord to forgive me for that because that would be a total lie. In fact, I often say my golf is apostolic because like the apostles, like the apostles, I go here, there and everywhere, Simon. I spent most of the time looking for the ball. When I find a ball, the delight is inexpressible. It is joy unspeakable to find a ball, especially if it's somebody else's. It was anyway. lost and now is found. Brilliant. <laughs> exactly. But Hollywood is where I grew up, and it's not Hollywood, California. Shame. It's Hollywood County Down, just, just a few miles from Belfast. I'm an only child. My dad grew up in East Belfast in a church called Willowfield, which is quite a well-known church these days. And my mum was a Presbyterian and grew up in the depths of County Antrim. And she grew up on a farm and she was one of many children. Uh, they got married. My mum was a nurse. My dad was a manager in a factory. And I often say I think my arrival was such a shock to my mum and dad, they didn't have any more. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I'm one of these kids who had had a, an extremely happy experience of school. I went to nursery school in Hollywood, primary school, and then a grammar school. And I loved it every day. But I also uh, faced early in my life um, the pain of bereavement as well, because when I was eight years old, my dad died, mm. and I will never forget that. And then when I was in my late teens, my mum developed cancer, and we were very, very close to each other, and she died on Boxing mm. Day 1968. So in my late teens, I was an orphan. But it's interesting, Simon, in hindsight, I think unknown to me, God was actually preparing me for what his call in my life was, and that was to be a pastor and a preacher. And those two experiences gave me insights uh, that I would never have had, obviously, if I hadn't gone through the profound pain of personal loss. Sure. 
So did you, after school, go to university? Did you go straight into a career, a job to begin with? What, what, what course yeah, did you take? I, uh, I, remember, <laughs> I remember as a little boy, Simon, the, the first thing I ever wanted to be was a sailor. I grew up beside the sea. I did a lot of sailing on Belfast Loch, the sea in Hollywood, and I wanted to travel the world and see the sea. But over the years, and I'll say more about that in a moment, I became much clearer as to what God's call in my life was. After schools in Hollywood, I went to university in Dublin, Mm -hmm. uh, the capital of Ireland. Now, for those who don't know, Dublin is in the Republic of Ireland, which is a different political jurisdiction to Northern Ireland, where I grew up. Um, So that was quite a big step, but I absolutely loved my university days. I was in Dublin for five years and then left Dublin uh, to be ordained in the Church of Ireland, which is part of the the Anglican Communion. And uh, Helen and I were married uh, in 1971, and then I was ordained in 1972. So you found your fabulous Helen... And then you've had, you had how many children? We had four girls, uh, Alison, Tanya, Linda and Nicola. So I often say, Simon, my, my favourite verse in the Bible is, blessed art thou amongst women. Because for many years, <laughs> many years I lived with five women. Wow, and, uh, survived if, if five this women. Was, <laughs> if this was visual, people would see that I've no hair. I, at the top of my... <laughs> The top of my head is to remind people of heaven. There's no parting there. (laughs) (laughs) But having said that, I absolutely love the five girls, the five women in my life. And I I am so thankful for the privilege of being a husband and a dad. And now uh, Helen and I are grandparents as well. We have five grandchildren. Lovely. Which is a great blessing. And that grandparent-grandchild relationship is so beautiful, isn't it? So So pure. special. You can always just pass them yeah. back when you've had enough. <laughs> and in fact, Helen often says one of the people who, in fact, the person who had the biggest influence on her life was her grandmother, her mum's mum. Right. And uh, she had a profound influence on Helen. Mm. And uh, she died when Helen was in her teenage years and Helen just broke her heart. But... I mean, both Helen and I would say it is quite remarkable, and for any who are grandparents who are listening, it is quite remarkable how God can use grandparents to be such an influence on grandchildren. Very special ministry. Absolutely. Yeah, speaking of myself, my uh, my grandmother had a massive influence on me. Um, now, right. you, everyone knows you in general as Fanta, so that you're, you're more Fanta than Ken, aren't you? What, this is true. Where did Fanta come from? <laughs> well, when I was growing up, I mean, this isn't it amazing how cultures have changed? This would be so politically incorrect now, Simon, but I had a series of nicknames before I was 11 years old. Uh, I had a nickname, Blondie, which changed to Whitey, and that was because I had a hair, uh, a head of beautiful blonde hair. So that was my nickname. But then when I was about nine, ten years old, I became deep and wide, and I was really quite overweight. And uh, so my lovely, kind, encouraging friends called me Fatty. (laughs) So I was known in Hollywood as Fatty Clark. That was it. 
But then when I was about 10, 11 years old on television, and I know, Simon, it will surprise you that television was invented when I was 10, 11 years old, but there came these cartoons to teach children the rules of the road and the highway code. And the main character in the cartoon was an elephant and the elephant's name was Fanta. So my kind, encouraging, affirming friends thought, Fanta the elephant, Fatty Clark, same size, same shape, same dimensions, we'll call him Fat Fanta after the elephant. Well, I mean, Simon, that's a no-brainer. When you're 10, 11 years old, which would you prefer, being called Fanta or Fatty? Yeah, so that's how Fanta. Fanta started, and it has lasted now... 60 years it's nice. incredible Remarkable. and in fact when when my mum was alive someone stopped her in hollywood one day and said excuse me you're mrs fanta aren't you <laughs> <laughs> wow, really. so um getting to you know some 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 meaty stuff um the troubles everyone had their different experience of the troubles what was yours yeah it was heartbreaking actually simon i have to be honest the, the town I grew up in, which I've already mentioned, Hollywood, was actually one of the safest places in Northern Ireland. But a few miles away, literally just a few Belfast, was one of the most dangerous places in Northern Ireland. And uh, several of my personal friends were killed in the Troubles. One was a, a lad who grew up just a few doors away from me. He joined the police, or the RUC as it was called then and uh, he was blown up in a bomb. Then one of my best, very closest school friends, uh, a chap called Billy McConnell, after Queen's Univer after leaving school, he went to Queen's University in Belfast, and then he became a prison governor. And he was going out to work one morning, and his wife, Beryl, and his three-year-old daughter, Gail, kissed him goodbye at the front door. He walked a few yards to the driveway where his car was parked to get in to drive to work. And two gunmen came out and shot him dead in front of his wife and three-year-old daughter. Mm. And, uh, I mean, that was just devastating. I can remember the, the, where Helen and I were in March 1984 on the day we heard Billy McConnell had been shot dead by the terrorists. And uh, I had the great privilege of preaching at a memorial service for him. And in fact, actually, literally just a few days ago on television in Northern Ireland, there was a programme called People of Faith. And his widow, Beryl, who remarried, uh, she told something of her story on that day. And it's a remarkable story because even as she held Billy on the ground as he was dying, God gave her the most phenomenal gift of forgiveness of the killers. And uh, she has lived and walked that pathway of forgiveness ever since. Quite remarkable. Mm. And that's, you know, that's the kind of thing God does. Um, but many, many people have suffered during the Troubles. And I would say, sadly, um, Simon, one of the spin-offs of a period of violence like that is it leaves enormous scars in a country. Yeah. I'm sure you find this in Burundi, Rwanda, different parts of the world. But out of that come the most remarkable stories of hope. I mean, I remember 
uh, one I will never forget uh, was a young girl, Karen McKeown, who was a student at Queen's University in Belfast and a keen, keen Christian. She came out of her church one evening in East Belfast and terrorists shot her dead. The only reason she was shot dead was because she was a Protestant, not because of any paramilitary activity or violent activity, nothing. She was admitted to the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast and her family were around her bed. And as she was dying, they could see her trying to sing. Mm -hmm. And what was she trying to sing? A song that we often sang in youth fellowships at that time. Karen was trying to sing, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. And that's it. I'm emotionally even thinking, but that's how she went to glory, Simon. Yeah. Oh, with a song of praise on her lips. Like, yeah. how is that possible? It's only possible because of God, yeah. you know, by the grace of God. And I, I just think the hope that we can have in our hearts as followers of Jesus is just indescribably wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, at my friend Billy McConnell's funeral, It was amazing. It was as if he had known something was going to happen. And literally a couple of weeks before he was killed, he wrote a letter, which nobody knew about. And that letter was read out at his funeral. And in that letter, he said this, in March 1966, I committed my life, work and actions to Almighty God in the sure and certain hope that nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Mm. my Lord. At our wedding, we sang the hymn, Jesus, my blood and righteousness. I would like you all to stand and sing it now. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Mm. And we all stood and sang that hymn at his funeral. And honestly, the tears were just rolling down my cheeks. It was powerful. But that's the resurrection hope that we have. It's unique and it can only be found in Jesus. That's right. You know, for us outsiders who weren't brought up in that context, it's a very unusual context. It's very hard to understand. I'm not even going to ask you to try to explain the context of, you know, the, the, the Catholic Protestant uh, divisions that and that sort of stuff because it's so uh, nuanced, isn't it? It is. And what I would say to you, Simon, about that is one of uh, Ireland's most famous businessmen is a man called Tony O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also played rugby for Ireland, actually. But he was asked one time, um, can you explain the Irish problem? And he said this, unless you're completely confused, you're not thoroughly informed. <laughs> and he yeah. is so... That is a brilliant answer because he's so right and it ties in exactly with what you have just said. It is confusing and it is difficult to understand. So, I mean, one of the most truly amazing, remarkable nights of my life was uh, in a pub um, in Belfast near Willowfield, the church you mentioned. It was Dave McClay's initiative. He's always a a creative guy. And he thought, how can I get these, these, well, some people's terrorists, some people's freedom fighters, isn't it, depending on what side you are. But how can I get these guys to engage... And so what he did was that he, he got 
himself he got us invited into their pub i forget the name of the pub and the upstairs section uh to engage with his whole sort of bunch of parishioners and i was brought in as a i was billed as a conflict resolution expert from central africa and i was like what oh wow never been billed at that <laughs> and uh, so i got the chance no. to speak and then david irvine who everyone in northern ireland will remember i mean i think he got 10 years in prison for yeah. for planting a bomb, but he was actually the That's most right. incredibly erudite, eloquent guy. And I spoke, and then he spoke. Another guy who had been in prison uh, for for kneecapping people and all sorts. And, and anyway, it was so interesting, so engaging. And what's fascinating, isn't it? Is is was it the Quaker proverb? An enemy enemy is someone whose story I have not heard. And Yes. You know, when I listen to them, you know, we all, we all hope that they fall to their knees and give their lives to Jesus that night. I was I was almost converted to their cause. You know, it was just so interesting <laughs> when uh, an enemy is someone yeah. whose whose story you have not heard. So anyway, have you got any, any other That's any right. other sort of uh, sort of lessons learned or wisdom from that time of your life? Yes. Um I mean, I, I, I think one of the lessons I learned is that part of our following of Jesus is that we are called to be peacemakers. Mm -hmm. And there is a huge cost to being a peacemaker. For Jesus, it was the cross. And for those of us who follow him, if we are seriously intentional about walking the path of peace and being a peacemaker, there will be personal pain. I mean, mm -hmm. I... I sometimes describe this as the loneliest walk of my life. It was the year 1974, and uh, we had in Northern Ireland what was called the Ulster Workers' Strike. I honestly believe it was one of the times we were closest to full-scale civil war, mm -hmm. because really for the first time, the Unionist community turned against the British Army, which was unheard of. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the parish where I was a curate, which means assistant, my rector, my boss had gone to another church. I was in charge. I'd only been ordained two years. And this Ulster workers' strike happened. And we had a retired colonel of the British Army in our parish who was reputed to have a personal private army of between 10 and 12,000 men. Wow. And in Northern Ireland at that time, there were power cuts, trees were being felled, blocking roads. And in the little village where I was curate, Marilyn, there was a roadblock. And uh, we heard that the British Army were coming to dismantle the roadblock. And there must have been a crowd of about 100 people out there. Um, all would have been unionists, but they were going to take on the British Army if the army came to dismantle this blockade across the road. Mm -hmm. And a local councillor, Sidney Cairns, who was also a keen Christian, he was in the Elam Church, he and I tried to talk to these people, uh, tried, if you like, to be peacemakers. And I'll never forget this, Simon. We then saw in the distance the British Army tanks coming and Land Rovers or Jeeps. And Sidney Cairns and I left the crowd and walked forward to meet with the British Army. Wow. And here we were between this crowd and the soldiers coming to dismantle the barricade. And all I could hear from behind us were shouts of traitors, traitors, traitors. Mm. And I honestly didn't know whether a rock would hit the back of our heads or a bullet would go through our backs. But we then did, we got to the soldiers and actually, praise God, 
God intervened and there was a diffusing of the situation. But, oh my, I honestly didn't know if I'd ever see my wife. And uh, at that time, I think we had just one daughter. Uh, I didn't know if I'd ever see them again. Mm. But it was the right thing to do. I honestly believe it's what Jesus would have done. But, you know, story after story could be told of things like that happening. Some people have been incredibly courageous in peacemaking and in reconciliation. Yeah. Well, you've led from the front throughout your life. Um, Talk us through what that looked like leading in parish ministry. Okay. Well, I think one of the first things, Simon, I would say is it took me a long time to recognize that God had called me to leadership. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really think I was like Bartimaeus before he was healed. (laughs) You know, I think I was blind to what God was. Seriously. I mean, I remember it was quite a few years into my ministry when I really came to believe God has called me to be a leader. Um, even though at school I'd been a you know senior prefect and captain of the first 15 and president or chairperson of the Christian Union and all of those things. But I genuinely did not see myself as a leader. I genuinely didn't. I knew God had called me to be a preacher and a pastor and an evangelist, but I, I, I really didn't see that I'd been called to leadership. And so I think that's one of the first things I would say. In many ways, I'm a reluctant leader, a a leader a bit, I suppose, like Moses and Jeremiah who put up their excuses. And I think, you know, one of the signs of a genuine leader is that actually we're not sure we are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, if you think of the Bible, so many of those men and women who became great leaders went through a season of, you know, making excuses or feeling inadequate or, you know, Moses saying, but I'm slow of speech or Jeremiah saying, I'm too young. Um, So I think one of the important foundational principles is discern God's call and then accept it and walk in it and live in it. You know, we're not self-appointed. It's God who calls us and it's God who appoints us. And uh, one of the things that I have lived with all my life, Simon, and this is a second principle, is it's a privilege. It is an absolute privilege. Whatever God's call is on our lives, follow that call and see it as privilege. You know, I was ordained at the end of June in 1972, and you can work out how many years ago that is. And I can honestly say There has never been a day in all those years when I haven't lived with a sense of privilege. You know, when you go up to open up God's word and share it with others, that you're standing on holy ground. Mm. When you're when you're sitting in a room with someone and they're sharing their heart secrets with you, that is holy ground. What a phenomenal privilege, you know? I mean, I remember shortly after I was ordained, one of the things I prayed for so much was that I would see people becoming Christians and following the Lord. And I'll never forget being in this house of an elderly man called Mr. Gardner. And uh, I'd been ordained a few months. And during the course of the conversation, he said to me, Reverend Clark, I'm worried about my sins. And I said, well, tell me about this. Well, he said, 
I was baptized in Marilyn Church. I was confirmed in Marilyn Church. I was married in Marilyn Church and I will be buried outside Marilyn Church. But I'm worried about my sins. Mm. Well, do you know, Simon, we had the most incredible talk and the conversation finished with the two of us kneeling at his settee. He, I think, was 78 and I was about 24. Yeah. And he gave, he gave his life to Jesus there at that settee. And, oh, honestly, if somebody had given me a hundred million pounds, I could yes. have been happier. I am with the you. joy was unspeakable. And that man had a peace that he'd never had before. Yeah. And that was a man who'd been in church every Sunday virtually of his life, you yeah. know. So, you know, following the call of Jesus on your life, whatever that call is, whether it's to be uh, a mm. bread man, mm. a meat packer, a lecturer, a teacher, whatever it is, Follow God's call, live in it, and just thank him for the privilege of knowing him and serving him. And I think one of the course, in all the parishes I've been in, one of the courses that we've done that was really, really helpful is a, a course called Network, which helps you to discern what your gifts are, your primary gift, your mm -hmm. secondary gift. And part of the thinking of this, and I, I do honestly believe this is very biblical, God wants us moving in our primary gifts and, you know, in, in too many churches, we have maybe people, say, in children's ministry, but they really don't like children. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they're only in it because they feel guilty, you know, that they don't do it, uh, it, somebody has to do it. But actually, part of the challenge of leadership, I think, and uh, local church ministry is channeling people into using their primary gifts. And God has given every single member of his church gift and gifts and we're to use those not be spectators but to be players on his field so i think again one of the great privileges of leadership is releasing the body of christ into the ministries god has given us or as paul puts it to ephesians equipping the saints yeah. resourcing encouraging Hi folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, it'd be great if you shared it with as many of your mates as possible so other people get to hear about it. And listen, if you would like to support our work in Burundi, which is the hungriest country in the world, I'd love support there too. You can do that by going to greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. Now let's get back to the podcast. So you've been at it, uh, I mean, informal, you know, Anglican-style uh, ministry. You've been at it 49 years, if I've done my maths right. And you, yeah. you were teaching even on it this morning. You're teaching on leadership this morning. So give us a sample of further lessons that, okay. you, that you're imparting this morning to a bunch of people. Yeah, well, <laughs> last night uh, I was on a panel with a couple of others and we people could send in hard questions, simple questions or whatever. And so we were trying to field those and... Then this morning, I was speaking to a bunch of church leaders uh, from Philippians. And uh, I think one of the things we were looking at was that passage in Philippians chapter 1. And I think this is so important for all Christians, and not least for those of leaders, where Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi from prison. He refers to himself as being in chains. But he says this in the first chapter, I want you to know, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. 
and he talks about you know being able to witness to the prison guards and 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 then other Christians became more confident in sharing their faith because of his example his inspiring example and I think one of the things that I learn from the Apostle Paul and actually during this season of what we call lockdown or the, the coronavirus pandemic I think this is so important. How do we filter our personal circumstances? How do we filter the situation that we find ourselves in in whichever country we live in? Do we see only obstacles or do we see opportunities? The famous Christian preacher Chuck Swindle said one time, people who inspire others are those who see invisible bridges at the end of dead-end streets. Mm, I love that. You know, part of leadership is having a vision, seeing what others don't see, and seeing opportunities in the most difficult and trying of circumstances. I I remember years ago, Simon, a a Christian leader telling me he'd just visited somebody in prison. And this person he'd visited was a really tough young man who, you know, would stand on street corners with his blue jeans on and white top, and you wouldn't look sideways at him because you'd be so nervous, you'd think he was about to punch you or shoot you or something like that. But he committed some crimes. He ended up in a cell in a police station, and here he is, this tough, tough guy that people were so frightened of. What did he do his first night in a prison cell? He cried for his mummy. He cried for his mother. And I think of that and think of the Apostle Paul in prison. What did Paul do? When he was in prison with Silas, he sang hymns, songs of praise to God. Here he is, he's in prison and he's writing to the Philippians. And what does he see? Opportunities. Mm. You know, it's what's that little cliche about people behind prison bars and we look out and one sees mud and the other sees stars. You know, I think one of the secrets of the Christian life And one of the secrets of Christian leadership is learning to be content, as Paul writes about in Philippians 4, and seeing the opportunities that there are, whatever our circumstances. I mean, I would say, uh, although it was so hard when my dad died when I was eight years old, it was actually even tougher when my mum died in my late teens. And I went through a, a time of being angry with God, because she suffered so much, Simon, you Mm. know, for, she was diagnosed in July, 1968. I went to see my local doctor and he said to me in words, I will never forget, Kenneth, your mother has six months to live. And he was right almost exactly to the very day because she died on Boxing Day or St. Stephen's Day that year. And she was sick every day for months. Mm. And um, I, the, the universe, I was just finished my first year at university and they very kindly gave me time off my second year to look after my mum at home. So it was just mum and myself. And she was literally vomiting and suffering every single day. And cancer treatment wasn't anything like what it is now. But I can honestly say, Simon, even though I went through times I was so angry with God, I fired every question possible, God spoke spoke to me so powerfully, and that was a time of really going deeper with God. For me, one of the key issues was how could God love my mum and allow her to suffer like this? And then one day, uh, almost like an exorcet missile from heaven, God said to me, my son suffered on the cross. 
did that mean I didn't love him? And you know, that was like a door opening for me, Simon, it really was. And uh, ever since, the cross has just been so central in my life and thinking. Yeah. And, and just because someone we love very much is suffering, it doesn't mean God doesn't love him yeah. or love her. Mm. And the cross is such an example of that. So what I was learning at that time is what I've just mentioned about what Paul is writing about in Philippians. It's whatever circumstances we are in, seeing these circumstances as an opportunity to go deeper with God, move closer to Jesus. And even though we don't have a full understanding, we're actually walking the pathway of trust. Yeah, That's what faith is. Mm. And very much linked in with that. You know, I think when people think of you, the probably the first word that comes to them is, well, I would think inspiring, which is the name of this podcast, but I'd also think joy. And I think listeners can hear, you know, you're such an innately joyful person. And yet, and I could have thought before interviewing you, because, you know, we've come across each other's paths a number of times, but I, I didn't know that you were orphaned at a young age. And, and you, I knew you were yeah. good at rugby. I knew almost like sometimes <laughs> I could have thought that everything had gone well in your life and, and, and it was easy and therefore it's easy to be joyful. But you've taken some serious knocks. Some of them I know you don't even want to talk about now in your life. And yet you've still managed to exude that joy. So, so what's the secret there? Okay, <laughs> that's a very good question. I honestly think, Simon, the secret is found in, in Jesus Christ. I really do. I mean, I, I can honestly say that when we follow Jesus as one of his disciples, by God's grace, we see a bigger picture. And the bigger picture here is, I don't deserve to be forgiven, but I am. I don't deserve to be in God's family, but I'm a son of the King of Kings. I don't deserve so much of what has gone on in my life. And I've, I've an overwhelming sense of the goodness and grace of God. I really have. And I think that releases in me a joy. And, and it is, it, it's a deep joy. It's a profound joy. It's a joy that's unshakable. Uh, it's not a happiness. It's far more muscular than that. And what I find is this too, uh, Simon, that out of the deepest pain can come incredible joy. Mm. I mean, I remember being at a Christian leaders conference in the year 2000, it was October 2000. And it was one of those few times in my life when God spoke to me unmistakably, absolutely unmistakably. And something in me died and I actually wept for an hour. I, I remember lying on the floor, it was a conference in a hotel and I, I was almost in the fetal position and I just broke my heart. Now I'd been a Christian many, many years but something was happening that night and I remember, and it was actually somebody you've referred to earlier, David McClay was also at that conference. And I remember later that evening when he prayed with me, he said, Ken or Fanta, I have a very, very strong sense that this isn't just about something dying. And I just wanted to die to everything that helped me back from walking closer to Jesus. I wanted everything just to die that would be an obstacle. He said to me, I don't think that it's just something dying. He said, I think something's being birthed here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was so helpful, Simon. And I think if some of us who are listening are going through 
you know, a time of profound pain and maybe it's almost like a dying. Here's another way to look at it. Something is being birthed. Mm. God is maybe doing something new. And literally a few weeks later, to my total surprise, I was elected a bishop. Mm. That experience was so profound that I'd had at that leaders' conference that one of the traditions in the Anglican tradition is that when you become a bishop, you are given a cross. Well, in, in Ireland, the parish or the church you're serving in give you a cross, which you hang around your neck. And that's another story. It gives wonderful opportunities to speak to people. But also, uh, you wear a bishop's ring. And uh, I wanted just a plain, simple ring with the cross on it. That's all. And I have that in my right hand and my third finger. But inside, I have two verses. And one of those verses is John chapter 12, verse 24. Unless the seed falls into the ground and dies, mm. it cannot bear fruit. And I think part of actually knowing the joy of the Lord, part of going on with the Lord, is learning to die to self and to sin. And then allowing the Holy Spirit to give birth to whatever it is he's wanted wanting to do in us and through us. And that's, again, part of Philippians, you know, seeing uh, that whatever has happened to us, God can turn that for good. Look at the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. What his brothers meant for harm, God meant for good. Mm. You know, this, I think, is a pattern in the way God works with his people. Yeah, so, you know, some Christians, many people listening right now, struggling. Sometimes faith is like journeying through treacle, isn't it? And we can grow yeah. cold in our faith and in, in our walk with the Lord. And, and, and many give up. There are so many casualties along the way. Why do you think that is? And how is it that your age, coming up 72, still going strong? Well, um, <laughs> that's a very good question. Many, uh, we lived in a town called Coleraine for 15 years. And uh, we're part of starting an event there called New Horizon, which uh, you know about. And uh, one of the privileges of that was we met well-known Christian leaders from around the world who were coming as speakers each year. And I remember one year, and this is still answering your question, I remember one year asking the famous Stuart Briscoe this question. I said, Stuart, you've been a Christian for many, many years. You've preached around the world. What is it keeps you going? And he said, Fanta, two things, gratitude and convictions. And Simon, I would say exactly the same. Those are the two things that keep me going. When you read what St. Paul has written, one of the things that is so clear is he could never get over God's love and God's grace. Mm -hmm. He could never get over the fact that the Son of God loved him and gave himself for him. And I can totally identify with that. I still cannot get over the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, would love me enough to give himself for me and go through all that he went through so that I could be forgiven and be his. And I, there is a gratitude unspeakable for that. I, I just cannot express adequately how grateful I am. So this attitude of gratitude Profound heart thanksgiving is one of the things that has kept me going over the years. And the second is convictions. And I think this needs to be heard in our generation today, Simon, mm -hmm. which, as you know, is, speaks a lot about feelings. Yeah. 
But as Christians, we must never lose sight of convictions. There are certain things that are absolutely true and nothing will ever change those. And you know as well as I do, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are in prison right now because they believe in these convictions, these gospel truths that are unshakable and cannot be changed. And they're willing to live for these truths and they're willing to die for these truths and suffer whatever. And so there are these gospel truths that I want to live for and I'm willing to die for. And uh, these are convictions that cannot be changed. And I do think in this generation, we really need to rediscover the importance of the basic truths of the gospel. Truth is truth, and uh, that cannot change. Indeed. And yet everyone's these days about my truth and how that works for me. That's right. So topsy-turvy. Listen, uh, some people think that a person is over the hill by the time they're your age. You're turning 72 in May. Do you see things that way, <laughs> you old duffer? Can I call a bishop an old duffer? No, I... Or, and what are your hopes? <laughs> Have you got any hopes and dreams as you look forward? Well, <laughs> it's so funny. When I officially retired, because after being a diocesan bishop for 12 years, I became mission director of the South American Mission Society in Ireland. And I finished with it a couple of years ago. So I officially finished, if you like, salaried employment a couple of years ago. And people said to me, what are you going to do when you're retired? And I said, well, listen, the first thing is, I'm not going to be retired. I'm going to be refired. Amen. And I actually went, I actually went to a printer in Lurgan, which we live near, and I, I gave him a little sticker, which I'd come across in the States, actually, mm-hmm. from a family we'd stayed with in South Carolina. And it, it was a little sticker with a flame on it and one word underneath the flame, refired. Brilliant. And I said to the printer in Lurgan, could you print off some of these? I, I've given out 1,600 of these, Simon. <laughs> and it's a wonderful opportunity. So people now associate me with being refired, not retired. And that's all good. Because one of the things I want to look forward to is making the most of this season yes. of life. Now, as you know, there are all sorts of... You're far too young to understand this, Simon. But um, one of the things I'm discovering is that this season of life, for some can be summed up in two sentences. And the first sentence is this, when I want it, I can't find it. And the second sentence is, when I find it, I can't remember why I wanted it. <laughs> because <laughs> because we find we're becoming forgetful and you know we can't remember where we parked the car in the car park of the supermarket and all of yeah. that. There are changes that take place physically. Having said all that, The Apostle Paul, as he approached the end of his life, said this, As I look back and as I look forward, I want to fight the good fight. I want to keep the faith and I want to keep running in the race. And I can honestly say with all my heart, Simon, that's what I want to do in this season of life. And uh, when I hit 60, actually, uh, somebody who's been an enormous help to me over the years is the well-known author and preacher pastor Gordon MacDonald. Mm-hmm. In fact, he was 82 just recently. We were on a FaceTime with him and his wife. And uh, he said to me when I hit 60, he said, Fanta, once you hit 60, play to your strengths. And I think that is yeah, great advice. Yeah. You know, whatever it is, God has given us a passion for and we really enjoy 
in this season of life, the refired season, do those things, yes. make those a priority. And Helen and I are passionate about investing in younger leaders. And I would say to anybody who's listening, who's over 40, invest in younger leaders. Yeah. If you're in your late teens and 20s, invest in younger leaders. Um, when I was a teenager, the leaders of my Bible class were all university students. Mm -hmm. And those men invested in us in our early teens. And I thank God for those people. They caught the vision then. But certainly at the stage of life I'm at, invest in younger leaders. Make that a priority. And I want to go on preaching and teaching as long as I can and sharing the faith so that I can finish well and keep the faith and just keep running in that race. What a privilege. Uh, with this I finish, Simon. I remember some years ago speaking at Keswick Convention and uh, Helen and I were asked to pray with people after one of the sessions. And I will never ever forget this elderly lady in a motorized wheelchair came for prayer and she came with her carer. Her carer was walking along behind her. And she was well into her 80s. And I would often say to somebody at that point, what would you like me to pray for? And I was sure she was going to ask me to pray for an easing of her pain because she suffered, ter she suffered terrible pain. Do you know what she asked me to pray for? Mm -hmm. She said, this is what I want you to pray for. She said, there's a new resident in the home where I live and I have started sharing with her about Jesus. I want you to pray that she'll give her life to the Lord and come to know Jesus as her saviour. Oh, Simon, mm. I felt as small as a leprechaun, mm. honestly. I was so humbled by that. Here is this lady, well into her 80s, racked with pain, having a carer to help her. And what was her passion? To share Jesus and to see this other person, a new resident, coming to know the Lord. And it's that kind of fire burning yes. in her heart that I want to have. Yes. And I trust we all want to have mm. making the most of whatever opportunities the Lord gives us and whatever time he gives us. Amen. Well, what a great note to end on. I don't want to end. I want to carry on. I could listen to you for hours and I know that we could do another podcast and it'd be all <laughs> fresh material. So maybe we'll get the chance to connect again, Fanta. But it's been an absolute treat. Well, thank and you. And I'm inspired. And that's the whole purpose of this podcast. So I hope everyone listening that you've been inspired. And if you have and you're encouraged, please just spread the word. Give us a five-star review on iTunes or whatever. If you want to be in touch with me, you can do that at simongilbert.com or on various social media platforms. I could connect you with Fanta as well if you'd like. But Fanta, huge thanks, big love, and uh, God bless you. Thank you so much, Simon. A privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Toodaloo.